The next few minutes of WGTD's morning show will be spent in the water, so to speak. Spent swimming, so to speak. That is, we are going to be exploring what turns out to be the 10,000-year history of swimming, courtesy of a fascinating new book that has just been published by Hashett, and it is called Splash, 10,000 Years of Swimming. Uh, The author is Howard Means, who uh, has written a number of different books uh, before this, uh, some very fine works of, of nonfiction, uh, but in this particular case, uh, Howard Means is uh, combining his uh, sharp skills as a writer with his lifelong love of swimming, a competitive swimmer himself uh, since the age of five. And uh, so this, as it says in his biography, this particular book is a labor of love, perhaps in a way that nothing else he has written has been to the same extent. Uh, Howard Means um, was uh, a senior editor at Washingtonian Magazine for a time and uh, a, a very busy columnist and uh, freelance journalist. Again, the the author or co-author of 10 books, the most recent of which is Splash, 10,000 Years of Swimming. Howard Means, we welcome you to the morning show. Thanks very much for having me. I absolutely loved your book, and I say that as someone who... Uh, knows how to swim but has not swum in many, many years, never swam competitively, never even thought about it. Uh, so this, this is, in, in some respects, a, a, a world I, I did not know very, very much about and knew nothing of the history of swimming whatsoever. So uh, so I, there's just so much to enjoy here, and one does not need to be a an avid swimmer in order, to, I think, to find this book really, really interesting. In fact, I wonder... You, as somebody who has been an avid swimmer for nearly all of your life, I suspect that that doesn't necessarily mean that you had any reason to know much of what you end up exploring in this book. I mean, how much of this uh, book, in terms of the research of it, was a voyage of discovery for you? That's a, that's a great question, and in fact, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I thought this was going to be a labor of love. I thought, you know, they always say, write about what you know, and Every other book I've done was kind of a, a journey of discovery, uh, which made it fun for me. And I thought, well, this will be one I can just sit back and write off the top, not off the top of my head, but right from my heart. And every time I turned the corner in this book, I was discovering how much I didn't know, not how much I didn't know. I was just constantly surprised. And then it would gave me something to explore, and I'd explore that. Then I'd be surprised again. I mean, from the, the very beginning... I set out to find out, you know, I, I just set the goal of finding what's the oldest known reference to swimming uh, in literature and anywhere. And, uh, and that's when I stumbled upon the Cave of the Swimmers in the southwest Egyptian desert, where the oldest known cave paintings or pictographs of swimmers can be found. And this is the eastern Sahara. It's, it's, a, it's what's known now as the Great Sand Sea. Uh, and so, you know, and, and then I found out that that is now officially the driest spot on Earth as measured by the aridity index, uh, which is the chance a, rain, a drop of rain has of surviving once it hits the ground. And it has basically no chance of Wadi Sura in the southwest Egyptian desert. So then you ask yourself, well, why? Why is this where the paintings are? And then you find out that the, that there, that the Earth had wobbled on its axis about 4,000 years before, about 12,000 years ago. And all those rains we associate with the Congo, the Central Africa area, moved up, and the, the Sahara for about 4,000 years became a perfectly charming place. 
filled with rivers and lakes and lots of evidence of, of big, of big aquatic animals. Uh, for example, Nile perch were living there, hippopotami were living there, all that. And obviously, from these from these cave paintings, there 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 many of them in there. They're all doing a, a very relaxed doggy paddle. They knew how to swim. The artists had seen people swim, and so they were swimming in these waters. And I thought, well, that's a place to start the book. Uh, and so I had a, and I just kept every time I turned a corner, something like that was happening. <laughs> I just I love that in the in the prologue you. Um... You uh, write that, like any activity that dates back to the dawn of humankind, uh, swimming is an index of change, of social mores, of fashion, of how we relate to nature, of religious teachings and superstitions, of sport and how we judge performance, and most notably, uh, in the case of the uh, uh, this uh, cave of the swimmers, climatological change. And, uh, you know, in that little paragraph, you're really touching on the fact that when one is writing about a subject like swimming, uh, right. it touches on a myriad of, of other areas and other disciplines. Yeah. And so this, this book ends up being, in a sense, about a lot more than just swimming itself. But it's about Absolutely. the people who have, yeah. have been swimmers uh, all through the centuries. Yeah, and, and it's also, in, in, in one critical sense, this is something I had no idea about, uh, the, the golden age of swimming, I say in the book, and I'm sure it's, it's right, was the ancient civilizations, uh, Greek, Roman, and Egyptian civilizations. It sort of figures they were, you know, Mediterranean civilizations. They're, it's hard not to dive in the Mediterranean on, on a summer day. Uh, and, and so uh, Plato, for example, said that a man isn't educated unless he can read, write, and swim. Imagine that. It's a, it's a wonderful <laughs> statement. I love it. So Rome falls, the Roman Empire collapses in the middle of the 5th century A.D., and swimming absolutely disappears from Europe for a thousand years. I mean, there, there, there are you know, minor examples of it here and there. Charlemagne liked to swim, apparently. But to think that a whole realm of human activity and something as pleasant and as enjoyable as swimming could simply disappear from, a, from the entire continent it just, just amazed me. And so, so, and that again opened up another window of exploration. Of course, why? Uh, and I and I get into that in some detail in the book. Uh, it had to do with, and and so when when people resume an interest in swimming in the sort of seventeenth, early eighteenth, late seventeenth, eighteenth, and early nineteenth centuries in England, uh, because they're interested, they become newly interested in the ancient civilizations, and they realize people swam there. It's not that they don't know how to swim. They have no idea how to even go in the water. There are these books written called The Art of Swimming, and there are about ten of them with the same title. Uh, and the first thing they have to do is convince people it's okay just to go in water, not to even lie down on the water and try to swim. So it's just, I mean, it just fascinated me. I want to uh, delve into some specifics, but first I want to shift to the personal for a moment, if I could. Uh, sure. Just and 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 I should say, you know, you you touch on your own life as a swimmer uh, at a couple of points in the book, but but not extensively. I mean, that's not what this book is about. This is not a memoir about my life as a swimmer. Uh, but but you say a couple of things that are really intriguing, and we even have a couple of photographs of you as a youngster and you as a high school student. Uh, right. And 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 you make you know, mention in, in at a couple different points about your life as as a swimmer. I wonder if you could just talk for a moment about 
what it was that drew you to swimming and from such a, a young age and, and what uh, b- drew you to the pool to be a competitive swimmer and to devote right. what I would assume would be untold hours and untold amounts of energy uh, in this particular pursuit. Yeah, and, and to absorb untold amounts of chlorine over the course <laughs> right. of my life, too, I should add. <laughs> There's sometimes when I sweat, I smell like chlorine. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, my, uh, my mother uh, would, in the summer, my mother liked to play bridge. And she would park us. She would just park herself beside the pool, and there were three of us. I was the youngest of the kids. And, and uh, we would just have about five hours to, you know, in the pool. And we wouldn't leave the pool except to, to, you know, for the necessities of nature periodically. And so, you know, you were, there were just a whole bunch of us who did this. Um, and I had some success at it. I, 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 not because I was the best swimmer, because I had a skill set that was better. I won my first race when I was five years old. And I was the only one of the probably... Ten of us lined up for a race across the pool who could dive into the water. Everybody else had to jump in and push off the wall. So I had this great advantage. Oh, yeah. And I managed to come out ahead on the other end. And then I just kept doing it. I had some success at it. And I swam through, uh, swam through high school, swam through college. Uh, and, but it's more than that. It just, it just, I, it's just an environment that, you know, it's an environment that I'm graceful in. I'm not particularly graceful on land. Uh, you know, I, 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 if I try to water ski, I fall down a lot of times. Uh, but I, you know, it's just something. Maybe because I've done it so much from an early age. Uh, but I love the weightless environment. Um, you know, I, I, I love being out in the middle of a lake uh, with uh, you know one shore, you know, no land within a quarter of a mile and a hundred feet of water below me. That sort of sensory deprivation you get, and it's just you and the water and the sun beating down on you. Um, I've always loved body surfing, um, even when I busted my shoulder and almost broke my neck about six years ago doing it. Um, so it's just a mayor, you know, it just, it, it just, it's a medium in which I feel complete, hmm. I guess is what I would say. Right. In fact, early in the prologue, you say the near weightlessness of swimming is the closest most of us will ever get to yeah. zero gravity space travel. And mm-hmm. you also yep. say the terror of being submerged is the nearest <laughs> some of us will ever come to sheer hell. I want to just follow up on one thing. As you sure. describe, you know, the, the joy of singing, uh, I'm sorry, of, of as you... Yeah, you as don't you, want me to sing, trust me. <laughs> all right. As you describe the joy of swimming, I, I can yeah. relate perfectly. Uh, what is harder for me to understand as an outsider looking in is how anybody can love the hours upon hours upon hours that a competitive swimmer must yeah, devote yeah. to this, in part because compared to hours of football practice or baseball practice, it just looks like hours and hours and hours of the same thing. It just looks so tedious. Drudgery, is it that back and forth, back right. and forth, is, right? Yeah. Is, it, is it as tedious as it looks, or is is there something more interesting about it that the rest of us on land looking <laughs> at you are, are missing? I hated nothing more in life than pushing a blocking sled. <laughs> when I tried after the high school football team, mm. that was awful as far as I was concerned. Uh, you know, it's, I think what happens to swimmers, and maybe this happens to long-distance runners too, uh, there's a kind of a zen to going back and forth and back and forth. Um, I, was, I was swimming the other day. I did a, did a mile on the little pull around here. And 
I guess I, I was thinking about this because somebody asked me, um, you know, what what's it like to do that time again, turn and turn, and I don't even think about that. I, um, it's the same stroke, you know. I'm doing the same motion repetitively, and so once I'm doing that, I can sort of lose myself in it. And I and I'm a writer, and so you know, I have a lot of time where I'm just trying to figure out what I'm going to say next in a chapter or a paragraph. And it's when I swim that I get a lot of what I think is called unconscious resolution because I'm doing something that is repetitive and it frees my mind to go anywhere it wants to go. Uh, and for me, at least, at any rate, it's, it's, it's therapy. And this last, uh, this last you know, two and a half months when I couldn't get in the water uh, because of the coronavirus um, were, were, was kind of a... So, you know, I, I was on edge a lot of that time, not because of the virus, but because I just didn't have this time when I sort of disappeared into myself, as you do, I think, when you swim laps or swim long distance. Because mm. you really are in a sensory deprivation tank, almost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially if you're in open water and you can't see anything around you. Mm. In Chapter 1 of your book, and again, uh, f- for those just joining us, uh, I'm speaking with Howard Means about his book, Splash, 10,000 Years of Swimming. You, uh, in Chapter 1, talk about some of the ways in which there is, in your words, something genetically aquatic about yeah. us humans. And yeah. when, I, when I first kind of glanced at these words, I just assumed you were just going to tell us what we've already know, that most of our body is composed of water, but you, you aren't talking about that at all. You're talking about some very interesting ways in which oh, we seem to have been created for the water. Yeah, Tell our yeah, listeners I mean, about some of the more uh, interesting uh, uh, aspects of this. Yeah, uh, well, let's start with infants. Uh, you know, until the age of about six months, uh, kids, their windpipe naturally closes when they go underwater. That's the secret of the water babies classes they teach at WISE and things like that. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful survival skill, but it may come because we're aquatic mammals in the womb. Until the moment of birth, we're basically aquatic mammals. But there are all these, there are all these sort of mammalian diving reflexes uh, and things that happen to your body when you're submerged in water. Your heart rate slows down. Your pulse rate slows down. Uh, there's some wonderful uh, research that was in something called the circumpolar the Journal of Circumpolar Swimming, I think, was the name of it. You can imagine there's a publication by that name. And remember, this is circumpolar. This is, this is the poles, North and South Pole, that the, the, the dramatic effects on rheumatism, arthritis, et cetera, et cetera, in this water, which is in the 40 degrees, which is very uncomfortable for most, most of us. And the, the, the use of, uh, it's really, one thing really interesting in that fact, too, and this goes to some of the larger issues, um, Women, the further the race goes and the colder the water, the greater the advantage women have because they have subcutaneous fat in greater quantities than men, so it's a kind of natural insulation. Uh, so, uh, uh, and, and seals, porpoises, uh, whales have this too. Uh, and then the mammalian diving reflex, which, allow, which just shuts down your body as you go. If you go, you know, there are these sort of, Super divers now that go down seven, eight hundred feet using using sleds and various things to get them down there, but it would be impossible without what happens to the body as you go down underwater. Your your external limbs, your external parts of your body shut down, and everything shunts to the core of your body, your brain and your heart. Uh, and you have this incredible, massive pressure on you the further down you go. 
and that is a mammalian uh, aquatic mammal response. That's why whales can go down as deeply as they do. Um, so there, there are all these, oh, and then the other thing was, oh, this is really fascinated me. Uh, when you're underwater, you don't hear with your ear, obviously, in the normal way that sound travels. You hear with, uh, by bone conduction. There, there, there's, you know, the, the waves travel through the water and, they, and the bones carry it your ear and you interpret that as sound. And that's, that's why underwater you can hear pinging uh, really far off. Uh, if somebody taps a hammer a quarter of a mile away or half a mile away, you can hear it. But that's the same way that whales and porpoises make sound. So at some level, we retain the capacity to hear these things, which I think goes back to our to our aquatic past. Mm. Speaking of the past, I mean, it is really astonishing to think about how far back into the past we can go uh, to find reference to swimmers. And, of course, we've already talked about uh, the the ancient drawings on the walls of the so-called cave of the swimmers and right. and and other instances in which uh, swimming appears to be depicted in uh, the artwork of, for instance, ancient Egypt and so on. Yes, but I think absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. fascinating. But I think we should uh, actually move ahead if we can to <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. to what you again call swimming's golden age, the classical period of of ancient mm-hmm. Greek. Greece and, and ancient Rome. And uh, I think this is going to be of, 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 of this is going to be uh, for many people a, a, an enormous surprise to find out that swimming had uh, such a, a treasured place in the life of yeah. ancient Greece and ancient Rome to some extent uh, right. as well. Um, tell us more about the centrality of, of swimming. And, and how that folds into everything else that we understand about uh, ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Right, right. Uh, well, for the Greeks, it was, it was a military skill. It was treasured as a military school, skill. And in fact, it was a determinatorian Herodotus, the great Greek historian. It was a determining factor in many battles uh, when they were battling the Persians and, under Xerxes uh, and, and other times because the, the, the barbarians, of course, they were always called if they weren't Greeks, uh, they they might have an equal chance when one battleship was against another, but once once soldiers, once sailors, you know, had to go into the water, the Greeks could swim to the to another boat. They could swim to shore, and the other the the, the you know the Persians, whoever else, they just drowned wholesale. They couldn't get forty yards to the shore. They couldn't get forty yards from the shore to a nearest to the nearest to a boat just offshore. Uh, so it had it was treasured as a military skill, but it was also obviously done for just the sheer pleasure of it. Uh, there's this wonderful, wonderful. It's the interior of a, of a sarcophagus uh, in in the in the Campania section uh, area of Italy, southern central southern Italy, uh, that shows this, and it's from about I think I, I think it's about five or six hundred BC. I'm sorry, I don't have the date in front of me. This guy just diving off of a of a of a wall, a beautiful kind of swan dive into the Mediterranean, and it's presumably the guy who's lying in the sarcophagus dead. And maybe he's diving into the underworld, but it's a it's a it's a beautiful painting of of, of this uh, of this guy, and it's just it was obviously treasured for the for the form of the of the human body. And the Greeks the, the Greeks swam naked. Uh, the Romans uh, were were a little reluctant to to go completely skinny dipping, 
but they finally did as they as the as the empire went on. But the Romans were were engineers, and the genius of the Roman Empire really was their waterworks. The aqueducts that carried uh, water, you know, all sorts of places. Uh, the uh, the baths, um, the thermal baths, in and, and you see that you see the sort of some of that preserved in Pompeii. You see it also in Bath in England, where they built baths when they finally conquered England. Uh, and it was, it was the it, it, it was the heart of the civic life of the, these, these baths. People would go to them midday, uh, day after day after day, and they would in some cases they'd swim, in some cases they'd soak. Uh, but it was central to their life. And what happened with the collapse of the Roman Empire is the engineering of the Romans collapsed too. And so this idea of bringing fresh water from great distances collapsed. Sanitation collapsed. Uh, the Romans used water, too, to take, you know, to take waste matter away from cities. So all that collapsed. Uh, and with that swimming collapsed, because I think swimming was central. The engineering was central to the swimming. The swimming was central to the engineering. They sort of self-fed each other. Hmm. And so, uh, as you have already touched on, there is this long period in history, yeah. uh, not long after the fall of the Roman Empire, where so much of this falls away. And we're not talking—we're not talking about a thousand years where nobody ever swam, but but it lost its it it lost its place in sort of the central part of oh. of life. And you you cite several different uh, contributing factors to this. Yeah, just a couple of them. Uh, one was the one was the failure of the engineering. I mean, it's uh, the, the Romans kept uh, the the Romans kept the the banks of rivers from overflowing. I mean, it's like it was like happened to, in the U.S. when the army in, in, during World War I mean, the Civil War, when the Army Corps of Engineers stopped uh, doing the banks, you know, contending to the banks of the Mississippi. You had these huge floods, uh, and the same thing. The uh, so it, it was that there was also. This this idea of communal living, I mean, the baths, at least for the Romans and 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 for and not for their slaves, uh, unfortunately, that they the enslaved people they brought back to Rome, but it was a communal activity, and communal activities just completely disappeared. Uh, uh, you know, uh, royalty disappeared into their castles during the Dark and Middle Ages. The church disappeared into its strongholds, its monasteries. Uh, and and the idea of, of, of communal living simply disappeared, and that's what reemerged so powerfully in America in the 20th century. And pools were a big part of that too. We'll get to that later, maybe. But and then there was the religious element of it, um, the uses to which swimming was put, um, beginning about the 16th century, maybe a little bit before and into in America the 1730s. One of the ways you determined whether someone was a witch was to they did what they called swimming swimming a witch, and they would take a witch and they would tie her right thumb to her left toe and her left thumb to her right toe. They'd tie a rope around her and throw her into a mill pond. Now, if she sunk, you'd think that would mean she was a witch, but no. If they sunk, they pulled her out. If they if she floated on the water. That was proof that she was a witch because she was. She was. It, it had to tie. It tied back to the to the ritual of baptism, and those who were uh, those who had not been baptized would not be accepted into the water. So the worst thing that could happen was you could float, and uh, and that pretty much meant you were heading to the stake to be burned. 
and it actually favored uh, overweight witches considerably because they reclined. I mean, sorry, it it favored it favored uh, uh, scrawny people considerably because they sank more readily than than uh, than overweight people. Hmm. So, if you're going to be a witch, it was better to be a scrawny witch. Wow. So, in uh, a chapter called "Rediscovering a Lost Art," you yeah. point to uh, some of the interesting. Uh, works of, of, of poetry and literature that yeah. highlighted swimming and helped to, in a sense, bring it back into the mainstream. And you have obviously explored a lot of these uh, uh, works extensively. And I want you uh, to take a moment to talk about one of the most fascinating, which is, I believe, titled The Art of Swimming by uh, yes. Everard Digby. Am I remembering this correctly? You've yeah. got it exactly right, yeah. From yeah. 1587. <laughs> and you tell us that uh, reading The Art of Swimming is like traveling via time machine to some distant <laughs> primitive epoch in history and when cave dwellers still had no word for wet. <laughs> so tell us... I, I like that sentence. <laughs> I do too. I do too. So tell, so tell our listeners about the context within which... Uh, works like The Art of Swimming were right. being written and shared with the public. Digby, uh, Edward, Everard Digby was the first person to really, he wasn't the first person to write about swimming, but he was the first person to make a, to do a systematic effort. And he's one of those people that I was talking about, um, that a lot of a lot of the opening part of that book is really about how to get into the water. And he has all these bizarre ways to get in the water. He, you run to the water and you do a kind of a backflip and land on the water. But once you get in the water, he does provide minimal instruction on how to various things you can do in the water. Uh, he, he liked he liked the decorative swimming. Uh, he has he has and he had all these woodcuts. He has about forty woodcuts in the book, and one shows somebody lying on their back in the water and paring their toenails with a knife while they lie there. I don't recommend trying that, by the way. I, I gave it a go, and it's it's really impossible to do, or rolling like a roach. But it has some things that look like elementary backstroke and look sort of like basic uh, breaststroke, too. But Digby was a, was a Cambridge professor, um, and when he wrote this, uh, they were they were caning students at Cambridge who tried to swim in, in, the, in the local river, which I guess the camp, if memory serves me. I think that's why it's called Cambridge. Uh, and... Um, and they were drowning in great numbers, perhaps because they were college students. There was a certain amount of, of adult beverage was involved, too, when they got in the water. Uh, but it got so bad, finally, that the, the provost decreed that anybody, who, any student who went in the water would be caned. So Digby, I think, was trying to provide both a, you know, a, a, a general introduction to swimming and provide a public service. You know, people should learn to swim because your chances of drowning are considerably less if you know how to swim than if you don't. <laughs> And it was a very influential book. Uh, it, it, it was copied really by a Frenchman named Thevenot, Thevenot, uh and and one among the readers of that book, and the, uh, was Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and Franklin learned everything he knew about swimming from Thevenot, uh, and and Franklin then became one of the great, one of the ardent proponents of swimming, both in England and back in America. So it had a, a long-lasting effect. Right. And in the following chapter, uh, Chapter 5, which you title Swimming 2.0, you yeah, tell us yeah. that the revival of swimming in the Western world owes, owes much to three very different men, uh, Lord Byron, Richard Russell, and 
Benjamin Franklin. And, I know. Uh, and I, I love the story about Franklin. Um, so he 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 was you know, he lived in Boston as a kid, and spent a lot of time in the water because he hated working for his father. Uh, and, and 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 by by about age twenty one, he's living in London, apprenticing at a printer's. Uh, and some one of the guys that he's working with uh, says, "Gee, he'd love to learn to swim." And Franklin says, "You've asked just the man." So he takes he teaches this guy and a friend of his to swim. He says, "I think in two lessons." And then uh, about a week or two later, he and this guy and some other people are walking along the, the bank of the Thames. And uh, and and the uh, this guy tells that his friend tells the other guys that what an ex- excellent swimmer Franklin is, and they say, "Oh, can we see some performance?" And Franklin strips naked on the spot and dives into the river and swims about three miles with the current behind him, doing all these tricks that he's learned from reading uh, Digby via Seveno, uh, rolling in the water and various other things he did. And he says that, uh, and that became, the word of that got around, and uh, he was offered a chance to teach a very wealthy man's sons. And he said he thought by the, the response that he could have made a handsome living in London as a swimming teacher, uh, but he was he became back to the States instead, thus changing both the history of swimming and America, probably. No kidding. In, <laughs> yeah. in, in, I want to be sure to ask you about something in the following chapter called A Frog in Every Tub, in which you point out something that is so hard to imagine, and that is that apparently for many, many, many years, uh, there was quite a debate among swimming scholars and experts on whether or not swimming was best done as a sport horizontally or vertically. I mean, it's it's nearly unimaginable to uh, to, it's to think about. Right. So first of and all, I can't this... believe I can't believe the proponent of that. It was a, it was an Italian ever tried it. Right. <laughs> so ex- ex- explain what is behind this interesting debate that was uh, that was uh, in the air at least for a while. Well, uh, yes, because there was because there was no st- stored knowledge of swimming. All these various uh, techniques came, and 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 this guy, the Frenchman, I mean the Italian, said, "Well, you know, man is naturally upright when he performs activities, and so he should be naturally upright doing this." And then he claimed that he had swum a mile, and oh, I forget what it was, eighteen minutes, maybe something like that. Well, it wasn't until the nineteen, it wasn't until the nineteen forties that Olympic mile was swum faster than that. Uh, so. And and I think it was just because, oh, well, and of course, he was swimming as seahorses swim. Seahorses are the only animal that swims upright. Uh, and there, there was no sense to it, but it was still popular because it, they thought they were imitating, uh, you know, the natural world when they did that. This is how we're meant to swim because we're an upright beast to begin with. So all that stuff, and it just, these, these crackpot theories came one after the other, and I just love reading about them. For those I love you, writing about him, too. Yeah, that. Evidently. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Howard Means, and we are talking about his fascinating book called Splash, 10,000 Years of Swimming. And we are really just touching on just some of the high points of this, <laughs> of this book, which really uh, explores swimming in, in extraordinary uh, detail and in, with all kinds of, of, of different... Uh, uh, fashions. Um, I think it's important for us to 
talk for a moment about the the rise of both public swimming pools and private swimming pools and mm-hmm. sort yeah, of the, yeah. the 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 kind of the rise and fall and ebb and flow and and, and so of the which is which is really quite quite intriguing i mean that you know it is it is a it is a badge of accomplishment when someone can afford to have a beautiful private pool in their own backyard uh, and of course it is another swath of the public that is served by public swimming pools and they both have mattered a lot in this history right the uh and uh, this is an, also an expression of community that chapter i titled swimming together swimming alone as for the progression of the chapter but in the 1920s in america these these magnificent the roaring 20s huge pools were built in almost every major city in the country uh the fleischacker pool in uh, san francisco was a saltwater pool that was so large there were rowboats with lifeguards going up and down the pool I mean, these were huge, huge facilities. Uh, the uh, New York had a bunch of them. Uh, and basically, uh, St. Louis had two. Every major city in the country had, and, I, and my own hometown of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, had had two large pools like that. Uh, and I lifeguarded one of them, and I swam in a swim team at the other one. Uh, and they were, let's say you could have, well, some of them. Uh, the Fleischhacker pool, as I remember claimed that it could have 10,000 people in a time in it. Wow. And everybody would still have 300 gallons of water to themselves, something like that. I forget exactly <laughs> the figures. It was an amazing number. Uh, and then a couple things happened. One, uh, the country club movement comes along, and that is it's sort of built around golf, which becomes a very popular sport. But they were sort of scrubby little golf courses, a lot of them, and then they sort of... In, they, 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 the country club movement and the, the country clubs had pools, of course, to make it a sort of a mini resort. And that drew away kind of the upper middle class from a lot of these pools, which lessened their municipal support as it went along. Um, and then from the country club movement, we got to, well, the, the, the Depression enters in there, but not as much as you would think. There were a lot of pools built during the Depression by the Works Progress Administration. Uh, because swimming was te- was thought to be by 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 a various by a poll of uh, of psychologists and sports psychologists, whatever the term would have been in those days, uh, it was it was deemed to be the most healthy sport for for youth in America. Um, and of course, you mentioned the fact that uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, for understandable yeah. reasons, was devoted right. to swimming, and uh, yeah. his leadership probably uh, was helpful as well. Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then along comes World War II and the creation of the suburbs, and the suburbs start to build, you know, community-based pools. So there are, you know, 17 blocks have a pool, around a pool. So those sort of large, big urban pools become segmented, compartmentalized into communities. And then Shotcrete uh, and Gunite create these uh, sort of, you, you, can, you can now, instead of having 300 uh, gallons, uh, 300 gallons to yourself at the Fleischhecker pool. You can have 300 gallons to yourself in your own backyard with a tiki bar at the end, maybe, or something like that. And so it's, it's ever and ever smaller quantities until now you have uh, resistance pools, you know, one-person pools at the house. And then simultaneously, too, you have the whole – you have the, the, the – the issue of integration and segregation of pools. Pools are really the last taboo 
on uh, on segregation long after lunch counters there was a you know it was hard to uh, there were there were battles going over these before lunch counters and after lunch counters there were battles going on so they're an index of of how people live of society as well as of sports right and it's interesting you explore how you know there are certain theories about how uh, there was something about the swimming pool and of course by the mid 20th century you have people that uh, are wearing very little and yeah, there was oh, yeah, this right. and there was yeah, this yeah, sense, right. and so there was this sense of of intense vulnerability when for instance you had blacks and whites together and you say especially exactly. black yeah, men yeah. and white women and so on and and mm-hmm. for some backward thinking people this was Oh, this was issue. this yeah, this seg- yeah. segregation they held on to with great ferocity. I appreciate that you explore that. Yeah, and yeah. and you share some interesting numbers about how in 1900 there were 67 public swimming pools in the United States, and now there are more than 360,000. So that tells us uh, how drastically the landscape changes in this respect. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, exactly, exactly. You. Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. I touched on the fact that uh, that uh, what people wear when they swim uh, changed drastically uh, o- over the years. I mean, there's there's centuries go by where most swimming, is, as far as we can tell, was done in the nude. And right. then in Chapter 9, you outline what you call the great swimming cover-up in which uh, that changes drastically, and especially what is permitted for women to wear when they yeah. are swimming. Uh, tell us more about uh, what what uh, what women had to endure uh, if they were oh. interested in swimming. Oh, these swimming dresses they had. Uh, I mean, the idea was you should show as little skin as possible. And so they would swimming dresses. They were often gloves they would wear and hats. And at least in the, in the beaches in England, uh, Brighton and Margate and people like Lisa, they had these conveyances. And so a woman would go in, they go into a dressing room, and they would often drink salt water because of a salt water cure that had become very popular. That's where Richard Russell en- enters into the story. And then they would be, they, they, they would be horse-drawn, the carriages, and they would take them out into the water, uh, and, you know, far enough for them to dunk once they get out of the out of the other end they get out at the other end so nobody from the shore could see them and they put on they put a little umbrella down or a uh, what do you call it a canopy down over the door and then they would load they'd be lowered into the water by dunkers women who would wait it out who'd wait out there and they'd hold them and they'd push them underwater three times probably because of the, the you know father son and holy ghost the baptism right again and then they would be back in, and they'd go back in, and they'd come fully dressed again. But nothing was showing, and nothing was allowed. Men were different. Men sort of went out in the same conveyances, but they would strip naked as they went out and get out the other end, where women couldn't see them and swim naked for a while and get back in. But these conveyances, these clothes, these bathing costumes, for example, the dresses would have lead weights sewn into the hem, so they couldn't rise up and, you know, and expose the leg. They wouldn't float up and expose the leg. Well, it also it makes it almost impossible to swim. If you even if you wanted to swim and try to kick with a lead weight, it'd be like, you know, a resistance training. I think today. <laughs> um, so, so you know, and that that goes. I mean, as late as the 1930s, and the same in men, you know, it didn't have to wear quite that many clothes. But as late as the 1930s, men were not allowed to wore what looked like wrestling unitards now. Um, they couldn't show. Uh, they couldn't show for, uh, 
anything below the armpits, basically. Um, they, you know, there was a sort of a scoop neck, but they were, you know, they were, they were cover-ups. Uh, women's two-piece suits start to become, well, actually, it's the Janssen, it's the Janssen Knitting Company in Portland, Oregon that changes all this. Uh, and they they finally produce, well, let me go back one step further. There's, a, there's an Australian woman named Annette Kellerman. Oh, my gosh, what is, a story. <laughs> isn't she spectacular? Yes. Oh, I love that woman. <laughs> she's the, she's the, my favorite chapter in the book, practically. Uh, but she's the one who really changes what, what women are required to wear. And she's a she was a terrific swimmer in, in Australia, where she's from. She was a terrific entertainer. Uh, and um, one day at Revere Beach in the, I think it was... 1907, uh, she decided she wasn't going to take it anymore, and she shows up at Revere Beach wearing a one-piece suit without a skirt to cover her legs and without arm, you know, without anything on her arms, and she's promptly arrested, uh, as I think she might have hoped to be and maybe planned to be. Uh, so she goes before the judge for indecent exposure, and she says, "I, you know, I, why should I have to swim in more clothes than I can hang on a clothesline at one time? And, uh, you know, and, and women are dying because of this. And the judge agrees with her. Uh, and he lets her off without a fine on the any requirement that she uh, that she wear a cape to the water's edge next time. Uh, soon there is launched an Annette Kellerman swimsuit called, and, uh, and Annette Kellerman uh, laughs all the way to the bank, and she changes women's swimwear forever uh, at that moment, in that very moment. And she goes on to a wildly successful career in Hollywood and various other places. But mm-hmm. she's, a, she's a really neat person. The, cha- the title uh, of, this ch- of this chapter where you explore her is called An Aussie Wrecking Ball Goes Rogue. That, <laughs> yeah. that tells us a whole lot about how she was put together. It's, it's a great story. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I, I do want to say that uh, among many other interesting things you explore is, of course, competitive swimming, of which you have had... Uh, uh, you know, quite a lot of experience and success yourself. And um, a- as you explore kind of the long history of competitive swimming, you also tell us about the uh, special challenge that came with and still comes with singing, uh, with with uh, swimming the English Channel. And uh, uh, yeah, I wonder yeah. if you could just uh, say a quick word about this colorful history and uh, and sort of the special allure that uh, has been part of this particular challenge of swimming the English Channel. Absolutely, it was the uh, it was the it was the Mount Everest of swimming, uh, and it was the it, it's it's a really rough thing to swim for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's the reason people try to swim from Dover to Calais or Calais to Dover is because it's the narrowest point of the channel. 26 miles, which opens at either end uh, to be, you know, 100 miles. And because it's that, it's that neck of the, uh, of the channel, it concentrates tides, it concentrates weather. Uh, there are two shipping lanes, one, you know, one, one outbound and one inbound. And in between the two shipping lanes, all the jellyfish congregate, including something called the lines main jellyfish, which is a really, really nasty jellyfish. Uh, and so you and, and commonly uh, the swim doubles in length, at least in the early days, it doubles in length because you're, the winds also concentrate there and they push you in one direction or another. So it's, it, it was 
it was it, it was the you know it was the four minute mile. It was it was Mount Everest. It was all these sorts of things combined. And finally, a guy named Matthew Webb, uh, an English uh, sailor, uh, completes a, sw- a successful swim of the Channel and becomes immediately the most famous man in the world. This is 1875, and becomes immediately the most famous man in the world. Uh, and he has a heart, he has a sad backstory because uh, he, it turns out he was trying to capitalize on it, and he had no skills really other than being a good naval, a good sailor, and a good swimmer. And he ends up finally sort of desperate and poor and trying to recreate his glory by swimming the Niagara River at the base of the falls and uh, and is, is, is killed in about 15 minutes when he does that. Mm. Uh, but then the other great, the, the next great crossing of it is done, the first crossing of by a woman is, uh, is Gertrude Ederle, a, a New Yorker girl. And I don't, that name sort of lost to modern history, I suspect. But Gertrude Ederle was she she swam she became in 1926 really the most famous woman in the world for swimming it, uh, and she did it in a third of the time not a third of the time she did it in two thirds of the time that uh, it took uh, it took uh, Matthew. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm losing my thread here. Right, yeah, it's uh, on Matthew Webb, yes. Yeah, Matthew Webb, thank you, thank you, yeah, to, to do it. Um, and she did it by virtue of swimming crawl all the way. Everybody else had tried it swimming breaststroke. Now, it's been swum much faster in the years since because somebody figured out the way you can do it is to just sprint all the way across. The faster you go, the less you get pushed on either side, the less chance there is to get pushed. So it's been done at extraordinarily uh, safe speed, I mean, fast speed since then. But Gertrude Ederle, when she returns to New York after doing this, and there's been, you know, the world's watching because London is still the, the journalistic center of the world, and she returns to New York, and they have a ticker tape parade for her, the first parade for a woman, uh, and uh, two million people turn out in the streets of New York. To, I mean, it's an amazing thing to think about in 1926, uh, and and she had a little more successful at, at, at converting her fame to something else, but she was a swimmer first and foremost, too. Right. An incredible story. And, uh, and of course, you touch on the exploits of many other fine swimmers and competitive swimmers. You also talk about how swimming enters the, the realm of Hollywood in a very big way yeah. in the mid-20th century and, and touch on many other issues as well. In fact, there's a line in your epilogue that I think is appropriate, which says, as you're talking about your own life as a swimmer and lifeguard, swimming can be an education if you let it. And certainly... Reading your book is an amazing education in and of itself. I really appreciated uh, uh, how, how how your book is packed with information and beautifully written. Again, it's titled Splash, 10,000 Years of Swimming, published by Hashett and the author Howard Means. Howard Means, congratulations on a wonderful book, and thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. I've thoroughly thank enjoyed you, this. Yeah. yeah, this is great. I really enjoyed this so much. Take care.